This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. At its most basic, humor is the act of giving name to the absurd, taking things that are ridiculous or wildly unreasonable and pointing them out for all the world to see. I've been hosting this show for several years now, and almost all of our guests are teachers and researchers in universities across the globe. And if we surveyed them, I guess that almost every one of them would tell you that it is very hard to find a more wildly ridiculous place than academia. As a faculty member in the Creative Writing Program and the Department of English at the University of Minnesota, Julie Schumacher has seen a lot of the absurdity that is inherent in university life and and university culture. And she's seen tremendous potential in it for creating humor. Her most recent novels, Dear Committee Members and The Shakespeare Requirement, shine a sardonic light on academia. The first is presented as a collection of letters from a disgruntled writing teacher named Jason Fitger. And the second is a more traditional novel with Fitger as the protagonist. They're both wickedly funny and revealing. Julie Schumacher, welcome. Thank you so much. Early into Dear Committee Members... Your character, Professor Jason Ficker, a university professor of writing, he's writing to a colleague who's asked for a letter of recommendation. And he's not having it. He writes, the letter of recommendation has become a rampant absurdity. I fill my departmental hours casting words of praise into the bureaucratic abyss. And Julie, when I read this, I thought, oh my God, this book was (laughs) therapy for the writer. (laughs) (laughs) There was some of that. I write a lot of letters of recommendation myself, and though much of the book is totally invented, there was one episode in my own life at which point I wrote a letter of recommendation and then realized I was a judge for the contest I'd been writing a recommendation for. I was essentially writing letters of rec to myself. Which is something that one of your kids, this is what Fitger notes in one of his letters, that he had had to do this once. Yes. And again, most of the book is entirely (laughs) invented, but there were moments of inspiration here and there. Was that the moment that you conceived of this? Or what was the moment that you conceived of writing a book about academia through the lens of a person writing all of these letters of recommendation and letters of correspondence with other university faculty members? You know, it never was a plan that I would write about academia or that I would write satire. I didn't set out to do either of those things. It was a kind of writing exercise that came out of teaching an undergrad class. And so so what, you, you gave an exercise to your undergrads and then you thought, I'm going to take that on myself? Or I did. I did. I told them they had to choose a form and try to write a short story in a particular form. And they challenged me to do the same thing myself. So kind of facetiously at first, I said, all right, my form is the letter of reference because I'm always writing them for you guys. And then I started to mull it over as a possibility. Okay, but this is the worst. It's the worst when you give an assignment and your students are like, (laughs) nah, let's see you do it first. Yeah, exactly. That was exactly it. And uh, they called foul on me. Do you usually start a work of fiction this way? I said, no, I don't. I don't think about form. I think about character. But in Dear Committee Members, the form created the character. It gave me Jason Ficker. Have you ever been tempted or, or were you before you started writing this? 
Because I, I imagine this was a great relief, right? To be able to write even fictional letters with recommendation like this. Mm-hmm. But had you ever been compelled to be even half as snarky as this character is, as, as he's writing his letters? <laughs> I would say it's occurred to me. I've never <laughs> done it. That's why I think of Fitker as a bit of that evil twin or alter ego. He takes thoughts I've had that I have dismissed from my own mind as inappropriate or ridiculous, and he puts them into action. Okay, so why do we have those thoughts? What is so absurd about the letter of recommendation on its face? There are so many of them. I think you realize after you've been in academia a while that it's not just about writing letters for your students, whom, of course, you very much want to see succeed. It's also writing them for each other. You know, we (laughs) on the tenure track are always writing letters for one another, are asking people to write letters for us. It's an endless cycle. I started to wonder before I wrote the book, how many people are actually reading the letters that I am laboring over? I bet they're not reading them. Nobody, right? Clearly nobody. (laughs) Okay, you said it. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the other sort of absurdity of this is that they are on their face insincere, right? I mean, like nobody's ever going to write a bad letter of recommendation. It's only positive stuff. So, like, why do we even do this, do you think? I don't know. (laughs) I wish I had an answer for that. But but you're right. I think a, a really lousy letter of recommendation would just have moderate adjectives of praise in it. It would say, this earnest young person certainly worked hard during the semester who was in my class. He attended much of the time and seems a worthy individual. You know, that's a damning letter. Because it's not effusive enough. No, it's not effusive. You have to really, to write an effusive letter, you have to be so over the top that it's almost insane. I mean, speaking of, of insanity, there are these letters, these requests for letters that university professors get. And it feels like they show up almost every day in my inbox asking <laughs> us to rank students who are seeking jobs and internships, fellowships, whatever, into percentiles. And and they're categorized, you know, based on writing skill and intellect and God only remembers whatever else. Your character, Jason Ficker, gets one of these and it sets him off. He he writes, (laughs) you know, that a human being and his or her caliber, intellect and promise are not reducible to a check mark in a box. And the sad thing is that the request for this recommendation is for one of the students that this professor actually seems to have some respect for. Yeah, those boxes drive me wild. I I find them so absurd. And on occasion, I have, I've been tempted or been very close to just checking excellent in everything and then putting in the comments section, please note that the check marks above mean nothing at all. They mean nothing. Um, you know, here is what I really want to say to you about this student, but don't ask me to rank his or her caliber according to integrity, aptitude, mathematical ability, literary <laughs> prowess. It's just, it's absurd. Well, we've taken this thing, this form that seems to be sort of pointless anyway, the letter of recommendation, and somehow made it even more pointless and even more <laughs> or less heartfelt. I've always wanted to just 
recommend students on the basis of a phone call with the place or person to whom they're applying, because that would be candid. It would be not a written record. (laughs) Maybe it would be taped, I suppose, but that way you could actually have a realistic conversation. It's not possible to be realistic or candid thoroughly in a letter of rec. Speaking of candor, there's a letter about halfway through Dear Committee Members in which Jason Fitker commends a student for moving beyond Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) And this is just such a really great, you know, subtle lament about a world where information, vast, vast troves of information is always just like a few clicks away at any time. And yet many students almost never reach beyond the first search results. So we, we've been talking about letters of recommendation here, but this this book isn't just a critique of the letter of recommendation. It's a critique of academia. And, and this part of academia is, well, for me, it's heartbreaking. Does it feel mm-hmm. that way to you too? Yeah, I wanted the book. I think of the book as, in many ways, sad. I think it's a sad novel. I hope there are lots of funny parts along the way. But Fitker's trajectory is not generally a positive one. He's on the way out. His career is not going well. He has students who are not doing well. The state of the humanities does not look very sunny anymore. And yeah, it's it's in some ways... Uh, <laughs> A grim book, not just about yeah the letter of recommendation, but about higher ed, the humanities, and you know my own bones to pick about technology and the way in which we've all been forced to rely upon it. There's a character in the book. I think it's actually the character. It's a technological character. I think it appears in in the second book, in the Shakespeare requirement, Pcal. Which is this scheduling system that your character refuses to engage in. But this is one of those aspects of university life now, right? Where everything (laughs) has a technological solution that doesn't actually make anything better. Yeah, I think not just university life, but um, we're all just so reliant on these devices. I was very proud of leaving my cell phone at home buried in the bottom of a sock drawer until we had to use a dual authentication system to get into the computer, which still infuriates me. Now, it's impossible for me to work unless I have both a computer and a phone. And um, personally, I would rather work with a pen on a legal pad and leave all these fun devices at home. And you're not a Luddite, but I, I do close. gather from our conversations <laughs> that you're not a fan of technology and the interfaces that we've put between us and other people. Yeah, I'd say that's that's probably an understatement. The PCAL issue in the Shakespeare requirement, it's, you know, it's partly the university's own Google Calendar system. And I resist Google Calendar as well. I have a paper calendar and I don't really want my dentist appointment and my trip to the hair salon to be online. I just, that's for me. It's not for my computer to know about. You mentioned these books came from some of the bones that you had to pick with the university system and that Ficker is sort of an evil alter ego for you. You also say he's sort of like on his way out. He's sort of on his way down. Mm -hmm. I, I hope you don't feel this way yourself. (laughs) 
No, but I think it's, um, you know, the, the emergence and the overwhelming presence of technology does, I think, create a divide between people who are native speakers technologically and people who were born as I was, you know, in the middle of the 20th century. And we're never going to be native speakers when it comes to all the gadgets that fill our lives. In that sense, I feel there's an obsolescence in, you know, a lot of my world viewpoints and perspectives. And, you know, academia is at a crisis and a turning point also. Fitger feels at one moment that the humanities and higher education are in a lot of danger. They're in a precarious position. And he wonders whether the best years for the humanities in higher ed may be behind us. Do you have these experiences with students where... You either see yourself so much in them, and I, I say this sort of self-admittedly too, mm-hmm. like where you see so much of yourself in them or you want to help them achieve that vision that you realize at some point down the line that you kind of missed who they were all along? Yeah, I think so. And I, I experience every semester, you know, going into a classroom or this semester, of course, virtually meeting students for the first time. And there's a mutual wariness you know, oh, is this group going to not speak up or is this person disagreeable or problematic? And then you start to see them week by week, class by class as individuals. And there's a terrific thing about seeing these people as struggling, (laughs) striving, marvelous individuals. But it takes a while to see people that way, to individualize them and in the novel, it takes Fitger too long to do that with his advisee. He's too slow. He's too concerned with other things. And he doesn't stop to think about these people, not as just student number one, student number two, advisee A or B, but as these people who are striving. And it's so poignant to see them do that. The other thing is, though, right, like you come to see students sometimes in in a less flattering light. I love it when Fitger describes catching plagiarists. And he, he revels in the fact that students are like shocked that he could possibly discern a difference in quality between their work and, for instance, the work of Marcel Proust. I take it you've been there. Oh, I've been there. And it's interesting. I teach a lot of undergraduate creative writing. And People say to me, well, you know, obviously creative writing, you don't worry about plagiarism there. And I say, oh, you would be surprised. You would be surprised. It is amazing that students will turn in work that was published in The New Yorker. And you think, I just read that story in The New Yorker. Um, <laughs> when you run into these situations, what is the more powerful emotion? Is it, is it feeling bad for this student, is it feeling angry about their mistake or is it feeling insulted that they thought that you were dumb enough that they could get away with it? <laughs> Probably some of each of those. Again, I can feel indignant, ticked off initially. And then I have a conversation with the student, one of those very tentative, awkward, delicate conversations. And then the student bursts into tears. And I think, oh man, here I am. Here's this human being in front of me. And It's not just plagiarism. It's this person in front of me. And you have to react to a student as 
a human being who's striving. You work in the humanities, as does your character. In the Shakespeare requirement, you write that Ficker, as a novelist, not a scholar, was generally regarded as a subordinate species, which is, of course, hyperbole, but maybe not by much these days. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting to be an artist in a university. You know, some people have always felt that that's an awkward relationship or liaison that, you know, artists should be in Paris somewhere roaming the streets and chain smoking and drinking absinthe. But the reality today is that arts have a huge home, a significant one in academia. And in some universities, writers, painters, people in theater are welcomed. In others, they are not so much. Scholars and artists are are different breeds. How much of this book was a product of your own observations about academia? And how much was it, you know, collecting tidbits from colleagues (laughs) over the years? Because what I fear the answer might be is that this is all based on things that have happened that you've seen at your university, which would make me very sad for you and your university. No, I mean, I people ask me often um, if my colleagues still speak to me, you know, have I outed them or, you know, shamed them somehow and not in any way. I, I feel like there's so much wackiness in academia, that there's plenty of material without plumbing, you know, my immediate surroundings. There are a couple of incidents that I heard as urban legends or lore. There's a character I invented in Dear Committee Members who, rather than visiting the men's room, pees into old bottles and corks them up and sets them around his office. And, you know, I thought I had made that up, but I went to give a talk a couple of years ago, and someone came up to me, a gentleman came up to me afterward and said, you know, I thought I was the only one who did that. I've been doing that for years. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, he didn't know someone who did that. He was acknowledging yeah. having done that? Yes. And I had no idea what to say. I wanted to say, I thought that was so odd and something of my own invention that no one really would have done it. But here you are. So, uh, yeah, life imitates art. How do you keep your students interested, excited, desirous of becoming better writers in this world that you've just described? Well, it's interesting. A lot of people, undergrads, I think, have a romantic idea about writing, but when you emphasize that the best thing they can do is read everything they can get their hands on, you know, everything they can get their hands on. That feels like not a very pleasant long way to go about it (laughs) to (laughs) students. I often explain to them too, I have what I call the rule of 3000. If you read roughly a book a week for all of your adult lifetime, let's say for easy numbers, a book a week would be 50 books a year. And over an adult lifespan between 20 and 80, 60 years times 50 books, that's 3,000 books you can read in a lifetime. And that would be a lot for a lot of adults because a lot of people, you know, aren't inclined or simply don't have time to read 50 books a year. But that was a number when I figured it out that terrified me. I thought, 
my gosh, think of the number of terrific novels out there, let alone books of poetry, plays, <laughs> novels. It memoirs. doesn't seem like enough. It's a tiny number. And, you know, you, you hear people say, well, what book would you bring with you to a desert island if you, you know, were marooned somewhere? But the more accurate question is, if you go into the Library of Congress with their millions of volumes, which 3,000 would you read? Because you won't have time to read the rest. Um, so it's a small number. I read voraciously most of the time, but I have a career that builds reading time into my schedule. And uh, again, a lot of people are never going to hit the number 3,000. The Shakespeare requirement, it hinges on an academic dispute about whether Shakespeare should be required or it should just be an elective for English majors. And from the outside looking in, this seems like a quibble. But this is just so very exemplary of academia, which is a place where small things become big hills. And as a department head once told me, you know, the egos are so big because the stakes are so small. <laughs> what is the hill that you would go to die on? <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably wouldn't be Shakespeare, although I know a number of people who would choose that particular hill. I chose Shakespeare simply as a convenient place to hang the plot of that novel because it is a, a controversy in, in a number of English departments. But, oh, the hill I would go to die on? I suppose, um, you know, literature being taught in the schools. That would be the one for me. And in, in the Shakespeare requirement, too, well, one of the focuses of the novel is something Fitker has to deal with called the statement of vision. And I love this it. is um, something that's always struck me as kind of a, a nightmare, whether you work in academia or in business or lots of organizations love to have a statement of vision. And on the one hand, these things could simply be very clear. You know, we're a company and we want to make product X as safe and as lovely as possible so that people will purchase it. Okay, good. But in academia, it's hard because people fight over these tiny aspects. Are we the Department of Language and Literature? Language and Literatures, plural. Do we include translation? Are we American and English? You know, these, these tiny slice and dice moments make it very difficult for people in their separate fiefdoms to come up with an agreed upon vision. And I had seen certain arguments take place about mission statements and visions. And I thought it would be fun to play with that in the second book. Well, unfortunately, it makes an easily mockable theme. <laughs> it does. And I don't think, for the record, that academia is necessarily weirder than other professions or pursuits. There are lots of writers in English departments, which is why you get a number of academic satires, most of them situated in departments of English rather than Portuguese or philosophy or mathematics. If you had as many writers working in post offices or hair salons, maybe you would have an equal number of satires set in those places. But they're in English departments because English departments contain writers. 
you have said that you are retiring this character, Jason Fitger. But I gotta figure, like, this guy would be hilarious during the pandemic. <laughs> I know. I, you know, he's still alive in my head. It's almost everything else I've written when I'm done with it. You know, I still, I think about the character occasionally, but I'm done. I've left the character where he or she is and walked away. But it feels sometimes as if Ficker follows me. I think, yeah, during the pandemic, what would he have to say about this? I used to start letters of recommendation with the phrase, dear committee members, because it's less formal and more direct than dear Professor A, B, and C, or you know, the old dear sir or madam form of address, but I can't use that, can't use that salutation anymore because when I write the words, dear committee members, Fitker comes roaring back into my head. He's right there. That's Julie Schumacher. She's a professor of creative writing at the University of Minnesota and the author of Dear Committee Members and The Shakespeare Requirement and a number of other books and shorter works. Julie Schumacher, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was fun. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. I go have big ideas. <laughs>